Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual acts, child abuse, sexual assault involving minors, suicide, and self-harm that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the sleepy town of Kidwelly, Wales, lay a quiet, unassuming cul-de-sac. One night, a resident there named John heard a strange noise. At first, he couldn't quite make out the sound, but eventually, he recognized it as the soft cries of the young girl living next door. John remembered that moment for years. Not one to be nosy, he ignored the cries at the time. It wasn't until 2010 that the authorities finally arrived, and John learned the full extent of the nightmare next door. Behind the manicured lawns and clean brick walls, a cult run by 47-year-old Colin Batley had sexually abused some of its members for over a decade. John had suspected something strange and wrong was going on at his neighbors. Later, he wondered why he never raised questions about it. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll focus on a cult that arose on a secluded cul-de-sac in the small town of Kidwelly, Wales. We'll discuss the life of its leader, Colin Batley, and how he guided the group using the twisted beliefs of a cultist, Alistair Crowley. Next week, we'll learn more about the survivors of the cult. We'll follow the two brave escapees who finally brought Batley and his ringleaders to justice. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Bin Verified. Help chip away at the uncertainty that comes with online dating and use binverified.com, a leading platform for online background searches and people search reports. With their powerful search tools and extensive database, you could easily gather information about potential dates, which may help you find peace of mind before taking that next step. You can never be too safe when it comes to dating. Get 20% off today to help take control of your dating game. Visit binverified.com slash podcast. It's estimated that as of this recording, there are over 1,000 active cults operating in the UK. While someone might assume groups like these only thrive in big cities or rural areas, some cults have found homes in quiet suburbia. 
Cults often flourish unnoticed because the people around them mind their own business. That was exactly what the leader of the cul-de-sac cult, Colin Batley, banked on. Born in 1963, not much information is known about his childhood. It seemed he grew up in the London neighborhood of Shoreditch, and his father was a lorry driver. His parents were working class and often struggled to make ends meet when Batley was young. But poverty wasn't the only thing he had to reckon with. Batley claimed that his father sexually abused him as a child. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. While it's difficult to confirm Colin's accusation, the experience may have had lasting psychological effects. Children who are sexually abused, especially at the hands of a family member, can develop depression, dissociation, and difficulty building interpersonal relationships. In young boys, disruptive and antisocial behavior is a common result. In the article, Sexual Victimization and the History of Sexual Abusers, a review, psychologists R.K. Hansen and S. Slater explain that according to some studies, young male victims are more likely to engage in delinquent acts as they get older. Though men who were abused as children sometimes perpetrate sexual abuse as adults, that doesn't mean it's an inevitable phenomenon. As Hansen and Slater write, child sexual victimization appears to be neither a necessary nor sufficient condition for becoming a child sexual abuser. Even if 100% of sexual abuse perpetrators reported sexual victimization histories, it would not indicate that their histories caused them to offend. Many people who are abused as children do not go on to become abusers. Psychologists believe other factors contribute to this, like the environments victims lived in before and after the abuse. Given Batley's upbringing and claims of sexual abuse, he may not have been given the support he needed from his family. That might have caused him to lash out. Information on Batley's activities during his teenage years is scant, however. We do know he formed a meaningful connection with a girl named Elaine. After a relatively short courtship, they got married in the early 80s, when Batley was 19 and Elaine was 18. Not long afterward, they moved to a flat in London and gave birth to their first son, Damien. To support his family, Batley worked odd jobs, sometimes as a security guard at a supermarket and other times as a street vendor selling fruits and veggies. But Batley had a greater vision for his life, and to earn the money and power he wanted, he turned to crime. At some point, Batley began gambling and selling things on the black market to create a steady source of income. He also took a particular interest in breeding Rottweilers and Siamese cats, then selling the puppies and kittens for a mint. But the deeper Batley got into the criminal underworld, the further he was willing to go. He wasn't a particularly handsome man, at six foot three with long, black, greasy hair, missing teeth and a gaunt face, yet he craved power over others. To get it, he turned to the teachings of Aleister Crowley. Crowley was a controversial figure, famous occultist, writer, and ceremonial magician who was active from 1898 until his death in 1947. He drew inspiration from Western paganism, Eastern mysticism, and ancient Egyptian religions. Through the study of each, he created a belief system called Thelema. Crowley believed society had entered the dawning of a new age, known as the Aeon of Horus. He saw this as a time for humans to take complete control of their futures. He called this practice the true will and encouraged people to exercise that will through ritual, meditation, and sex magic. 
Crowley wrote several books about his beliefs and his cardinal tenet of do what thou wilt spread far and wide. Colin Batley found meaning in Crowley's books, especially the Book of the Law, which drew heavily on ancient Egyptian religion. Perhaps it was Crowley's encouragement to do what thou wilt that excited Batley. Being given the green light to do anything he wanted in order to break out might have felt affirming. The added prospect of sexual rituals served as an enticing bonus. In the late 1980s, Batley, now in his mid-twenties, started introducing his wife to Crowley's teachings. While we don't know much about their early relationship, at some point the couple started spreading their new gospel to their friends. Batley wanted everything Crowley promised. To satisfy his thirst for power, Batley wanted to cultivate a devoted following, just like his role model. He read the Book of Law like it was a Bible, and pushed other people in his life to read it too. Soon, he started holding readings for a small group of people at his home every Sunday. He called it church. In these sermons, Badley used appealing terminology like the palace and the realm to describe his religion's version of heaven. Beneath these promises of supernatural pleasure, though, he also introduced a culture of promiscuity. He taught that withholding from sexual relations with others was equivalent to denying the gifts of the gods. He quoted a passage from Crowley that said, Let all chaste women be despised. Many of Batley's early recruits were women and young girls. Manipulating them, he quickly implemented sex acts into his religious practices. He declared that if anyone wanted to join his church or move up the ranks within it, members would have to sleep with him. By dangling promises of occult power and earthly rewards, he convinced his followers to do as he ordered. If they didn't, Batley allegedly threatened them with the abyss, which was essentially hell. Cult researcher Dr. Yanya Lalich wrote about this tactic in an article titled Dominance and Submission, the Psychosexual Exploitation of Women in Cults. Along with social isolation and peer pressure, she suggests that, quote, enforcing sexual submission may be considered the final step in the objectification of the individual as a cult member. But Batley didn't only sleep with adults. At some point in the late 1980s, he and Elaine welcomed their teenage niece, Katrina, into their home. She fled there to escape her stepfather's mistreatment, but she only found more cruelty and heartbreak. According to a later interview with Katrina, only a few weeks after settling in, Batley sat her down and told her, I'm a member of a cult. You either join or you'll have to leave this house. Katrina looked at her uncle and agreed without knowing what the word cult even meant. Shortly after his conversation, Batley raped his niece as part of her initiation. Devastated and afraid, Katrina considered telling Elaine what happened, but soon realized that her aunt had already accepted Batley's behavior. According to Katrina, Elaine and Batley forced her into group sex with them and other members of the cult countless times. Once, when she tried to resist, Batley put a shoelace around her neck and pointed a gun at her. This treatment continued month after month. When Katrina turned 16, Batley forced her to partner with a cult member she'd never met before and to begin having sex with him that night. The couple was told to live together as if they were husband and wife. Katrina thought she had no choice because Batley told her he had spies everywhere, watching her every move. 
By the early 1990s, in his early 30s, Batley had developed a small, tight-knit congregation. At this point, his family had also grown. He had three children with Elaine. Despite his marriage, Batley carried on relationships with other women, perhaps under the pretense that it was all for the church. Elaine was aware of some of this, and the couple engaged in threesomes, but some of these dalliances became serious attachments that Elaine didn't know about, including one with a 20-something woman named Jacqueline Marling. Jacqueline already had two children and a long-term boyfriend, who was the father of her second child. But when she met Batley, everything changed. She fell under his spell and believed in the church's message of, do what thou wilt. She quickly dragged her family into the fold. Her boyfriend appeared less than committed, but joined to appease her. Batley made Jacqueline feel special, and she swiftly rose up through the arbitrary ranks of the church. In the group's hierarchy, Elaine still sat just below Batley. However, Jacqueline was rapidly closing in. Things continued this way for years. Batley took pleasure in controlling the lives of his followers, and he fed off the rush of power. But by 1997, he was looking for a change. Now, 34 years old, he started thinking about moving the group's 17 members out of London. The desire was likely fueled by a need for privacy. Batley eventually decided to move the group over 200 miles away to the small seaside town of Kidwelly in Wales. One by one, each of the families in his cult settled into houses in the same cul-de-sac, called Kloss Ear Onan. There, hidden in the middle of an idyllic suburbia, Batley exercised his ultimate authority. Coming up, we'll follow Batley's cult to Kidwelly. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. In films like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're portrayed as swaggering anti-heroes. In books like Treasure Island, they're fearsome villains. But who were they really? That's the question that Real Pirates, the new Spotify original from Parcast, answers. The whole thing about a pirate ship is that they were heavily manned. But you could have 100 pirates on board, so these are floating violence factories. At the same time, pirates were really fascinating characters, in a way. If you were born poor, you stayed poor. Pirates, on the other hand, they were able to transcend that social boundary. They didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands. They saw themselves as social revolutionaries. Set sail under the black flag alongside notorious outdoors like Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie and Mary Reed. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting November 15th. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. Shaq here, spinning fast-acting pain relief for 2024 with Icy Hot. Take it from me, sticking to your new workout routines can lead to sore muscles. Icy Hot starts working instantly to dull the pain with the icy cool sensation. Then, the warming sensation relaxes it away. Feel the power of Icy Hot's contrast therapy. Ice works fast. Heat makes it last. Icy Hot. 
The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is built to take you further off the beaten path. It has 9.5 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, plus off-road wheels, rugged all-terrain tires, and advanced dual-function X-Mode to help get you through deep snow, gravel, and mud. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. Adventure elevated. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. Now back to the story. By 1997, 34-year-old Colin Batley served as the supreme leader of a London cult modeled after Alistair Crowley's occult writings. Once the group had grown large enough, Batley decided to pack up and head to a small town in Wales. His devotees moved into several houses on a quiet cul-de-sac in Kidwelly. Batley and his wife Elaine brought their son Damien, his brother, and their young daughter along. Batley's niece Katrina, now an adult, moved into a neighboring house with her cult partner. Shortly after, Batley's second favorite recruit, Jacqueline, joined their enclave. Jacqueline brought along her boyfriend and her two daughters. Jacqueline's eldest, who we'll refer to as Annabelle, which is the pseudonym she used in her memoir about this time, was seven years old when she first met Batley. Annabelle later recalled in her memoir the first time she ever met Batley. One night, when Annabelle had just fallen asleep, her mother woke her up and told her to come with her to the living room. There, she saw Batley sitting in shadow with his greasy hair falling over his face. He beckoned the little girl to come closer. He said, Your family has come here to be part of something very special. The church will guide you to your path, but it is up to you to choose the way to the palace. Annabelle didn't know what he meant by palace or the path. She just knew that she felt uneasy. What happened next proved worse than she could have ever imagined. As Batley continued pontificating about the church, Annabelle watched as her mother performed oral sex on him. She had never seen anything like it before. She thought it must have been a nightmare. When Batley and Jacqueline were done, he turned to Annabelle and said that once she started menstruating, he would have his way with her. Annabelle froze, still horrified and unsure what was going on. Then, Batley dismissed her for bed. She laid awake for hours, trying to make sense of her terror. Over the next few months, Annabelle grew extremely unhappy. Her mother's boyfriend disliked the church and moved out. Annabelle missed her extended family, who rarely ever came to visit, and she longed to spend time with her father, who she used to see on weekends. At one point, she decided to leave Kidwelly to live with her dad instead. When Annabelle informed her mother, Jacqueline called on Batley. He came to the house and asked Annabelle if she was sure that she wanted to leave. Annabelle was adamant. She said she wanted to go. At first, Batley seemed willing to oblige her. He told her that if she felt certain, he would drive her to her father's home himself. But in the next instant, he suddenly turned the conversation around on the child. Batley told Annabelle she would be unhappy with her dad. He wouldn't give her the love and support her mother could. He offered Annabelle the choice again. Did she still want to go to her father's? Confusion washed over Annabelle. Her relationship with her mother had been frayed. Jacqueline often acted cold and distant to Annabelle. At times, she even seemed to resent her. Batley spoke as if she had a choice, but reading between the lines, even the little girl could tell she was being given a command. The tone in his voice implied that if she chose to leave, there would be dire consequences. 
The seven-year-old accepted defeat. Annabelle agreed to stay. Somehow, he had twisted her words and made her believe that was the safest option. Despite the fear Batley had instilled in her, Annabelle slowly settled into her new life at Kidwelly with the other families. She felt a sense of community that was new to her. There were lots of kids around, and Annabelle became best friends with Batley's daughter, who we'll call Jane. Jane was a grade above her. They lived in the house right next door and spent time together every day. Eventually, Batley tore down the garden fence separating the houses, making it even easier for the families to intermingle, and perhaps to allow him to keep a closer eye on Annabelle. The camaraderie she felt among her new friends and the other adults replaced the love Annabelle missed from her mother. And after a little while, even Batley started to become less scary to her. The church hosted barbecues on weekends in the summer. Even though the church's religion was anti-Christian in a lot of ways, they still commemorated the big holidays. Christmas and Easter were celebrated together. Batley's wife, Elaine, made delicious cakes for every occasion. But above all, Halloween was Batley's favorite holiday. He went all out on decorations, filling up their house and backyard with spider webs, skeletons, and fake blood. Those spots of normalcy made the stranger aspects of being in the church more palatable. For instance, every cult house in the cul-de-sac had ancient Egyptian iconography, from framed photos of Tutankhamun to statues of the god Horus. Many of the children didn't quite understand what the symbols meant or what the ancient gods stood for. But each of the adult women in the church wore necklaces with upside-down crosses. They all had the same tattoos of an Ankh and the Eye of Horus. For the cult members, the Ankh signified life, while the Eye of Horus served as a symbol of the god Horus and of protection. On Sundays, the entire church gathered for a claustrophobic ceremony where everyone huddled together in a small room. Members living in the cul-de-sac, along with some who traveled from outside, wore hooded robes and were expected to stand for hours on end without food or water. Meanwhile, Batley read passages from Crowley's The Book of the Law. The contents of the book were convoluted, and Annabelle and the other kids had a hard time staying awake or paying attention to his sermons. To keep their attention, Batley sometimes brought up a child who had gotten into trouble during the week and humiliated them in front of everyone. He often did this with his teenage son, Damien, calling him dirty or gay. This was one of the classic methods of control Batley used to break down his members' will and critical thinking skills. Psychologist Stephen Mason wrote that a common way to indoctrinate cult members is to keep them busy with long sermons. Eliminating comforts like food or drink also made it more difficult for people to question the content of his readings. In doing so, Batley demonstrated his control while simultaneously stifling any sense of dissent. On top of the endless lectures, Batley made sure to isolate his group from the outside world as much as possible. That way, it would be easier for them all to feel like a secluded community. Batley had a lot of rules for church members. His followers weren't allowed to mingle with outsiders in any substantial way. While the kids went to public school, they couldn't participate in extracurricular activities or go to their friends' houses to play. Some of the adult members of the church had jobs, but they were discouraged from socializing with their co-workers. Batley also made it against the rules for children to swear or make eye contact with him. They weren't allowed to speak to him unless spoken to first. Adults were forbidden to drink or abuse drugs. As a collective, they couldn't go to the movies, go to parks, or the mall. 
they couldn't even go to the doctor. When it came to finances, Batley had total control over whatever members earned. He demanded that they give him a large portion of their paychecks for the good of the church. He doled out small allowances for his followers to pay for things like gas or food, but kept the rest for himself. Many of Batley's expenses made little sense. At some point, he bought a luxury caravan. He also bought two Rottweilers, one named Seket, named after an Egyptian god, and Toots after the pharaoh Tutankhamun. While the pets were friendly and protective of him, they were terrifying to everyone else. Batley liked to scare the others by flaunting the power he held over the Rottweilers. Batley effectively demonstrated that he had two vicious dogs at his disposal. They were ready and willing to protect him from anyone who tried to double-cross him. He called them the Devil's Dogs. In the summer of 2001, 38-year-old Batley deployed his exploitative tactics on Annabelle. Now 11 years old, she spent many days jumping out of Bouncy Castle with the other kids. On one of those seemingly innocent days, the young girl's life turned upside down. According to Annabelle's memoir, while the other children were playing outdoors, she went inside and upstairs to her room. Batley suddenly appeared, sat beside her on her bed, and asked her a few questions about her day. She noticed his skin smelled strongly of cigarettes. Without warning, he pinned her down and raped her. Once he was done, he simply looked at her and said, I told you I'd have you. Annabelle was horrified and in pain. It was only the beginning of the abuse. Batley told the girl he was testing her as part of their religion. He said she needed to pass these trials if she wanted to move up the ranks in the church. Not knowing any better or having any hope of a way out, Annabelle accepted her fate. She thought this was the way to please the gods because that's what Batley told her. Batley started visiting multiple times a week to sexually assault her. Annabelle's mother, Jacqueline, knowingly allowed Batley to abuse her daughter. The dynamic made it extremely difficult for Annabelle to ask for help or to get away from Batley's grasp. She had no protection, and things would only get worse. Coming up, Annabelle and her mother are trapped in Batley's web. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Yeah. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Now back to the story. After Colin Batley moved his twisted cult to Kidwelly, Wales, he got away with even more abuse. By isolating his followers from the outside world, he had them living in fear and awe. 
By 2001, the 38-year-old was regularly raping several women and girls in the cult. He even encouraged competition between them. According to one of his underage victims, Annabelle, the ultimate goal was to become a scarlet woman, the most coveted rank in the church. Batley referred to himself as the Prince Priest, which was the highest rank in the congregation. The Scarlet Woman was the female equivalent. He likely dangled that carrot to numerous girls and women, telling them all they could earn the title by participating in his tests. These members were desperate for Batley's approval because they wanted social acceptance in their community. However, they were also afraid of Batley's retaliation should they ever reject his advances. And his control over the women's lives didn't stop there. Some of them worked or collected government benefits, which Batley took to fund the church. As he piled up their money, Batley's lifestyle became more extravagant. He brazenly purchased a brand new TV and nice furniture for himself. He also bought his daughter Jane any gift she wanted. Annabelle, who was best friends with Jane, kept Batley's sexual abuse a secret from his daughter. She feared being blamed for Batley's abuses and worried about how it might ruin her bond with Jane. But their friendship suffered anyway. Jane and her mother Elaine eventually learned Annabelle's mother Jacqueline was sleeping with Batley. While the group proclaimed to be sexually open, this relationship in particular threatened Elaine's rank in the social hierarchy. Jacqueline often disappeared at night to be with Batley. In turn, Batley admired her because she supported him unconditionally. She did anything he desired, no matter how sinister. Around 2004, when Annabelle was 14, Batley, now 41, sank even lower into the depths of depravity. He decided to include Annabelle's mother in the abuse. Throughout many of Batley's teachings, he hammered home the idea that traditional family structures didn't exist in his church. There was no father, mother, brother, or sister. There was only the church. And there was no sin or wrongdoing, only will and desire. In a documentary about the cul-de-sac cult, an expert in sexual violence, Christiane Sanderson, stated that Batley forcing his members to participate in incest was the final step in breaking their will. Sexual relations with family members were seen as the last taboo. Once they'd been shattered, Batley likely hoped his followers would be unable to turn back to lives outside of his group. Annabelle was sickened by the escalation, but her mother only seemed concerned with following Batley's orders. The two adults abused Annabelle regularly. Annabelle claims it happened weekly. That didn't include all the occasions when Batley acted on his own, either. Annabelle desperately wanted to be a normal girl who could play with her friends and focus on school. She barely got enough sleep because of the traumatic experiences. Her grades at school suffered. Then, when it seemed things in Annabelle's life couldn't get any worse, they did. Jacqueline started showing signs of pregnancy. Annabelle knew her mother was pregnant with Batley's child, but Jacqueline spread the rumor that it was her ex-boyfriend's. Her boyfriend hadn't visited Jacqueline in years, but she wanted people to think they were still seeing each other to keep Batley's wife Elaine from finding out about the affair. She knew Elaine would be upset that her top position in the church was threatened. Meanwhile, it seems that Batley took Jacqueline's pregnancy as a wake-up call. He needed to be more careful about covering his tracks to preserve harmony in his church. That's when he started matchmaking Annabelle with an older boy in the group named Thomas. 
At 19, Thomas was five years older than Annabelle. She didn't know Thomas well and had no romantic interest in him, but Batley didn't relent. He commanded her to make Thomas her boyfriend. Even worse, he told her to start sleeping with the young man right away. Batley probably hoped that if Annabelle ever got pregnant, the members would assume the baby was Thomas's. Annabelle, who wanted to finish school and find a career that would get her out of the church, didn't want to have a child. She made sure Thomas used a condom every time. In the midst of all of this, Jacqueline gave birth. She gave the baby boy an Egyptian name that was significant to the cult. Annabelle soon found herself having to care for the child who her mother ignored. While she loved her baby brother, it was yet another exhausting task for her on top of everything else. Then, only a few months after giving birth, Jacqueline started going out of town on weekends on official church business. The baby was left for Annabelle to care for. Jacqueline was often gone for three days at a time. When she got back, she said she was too tired to care for the baby. Annabelle wondered what Jacqueline could be doing for the church that was so draining. She later learned that her mother and other prominent women in the church were staying at brothels. They were engaging in sex work to fund Batley's increasingly lavish lifestyle. For a couple of years, Annabelle endured the same debilitating responsibilities, and she was expected to have sex with Batley, her mother, and Thomas multiple times a week. On top of that, she raised her baby brother while also trying to finish school and working a part-time job. To add insult to injury, Batley also made Jacqueline and Annabelle share their home with his eldest son, Damien, who was in his 20s. Batley didn't have a great relationship with Damien and didn't want him living under his own roof. All of these obligations to other people broke Annabelle's spirit. Coupled with the constant sexual abuse, she felt nothing less than absolutely crushed. She only coped by dissociating and numbing herself to the pain. Annabelle considered running away or killing herself and made one suicide attempt. But the possibility of escape vanished in the summer of 2007. Annabelle suddenly started feeling sick and skipped her period. That's when she realized that she was pregnant, all at age 17. Annabelle knew who the father was because she always used a condom with Thomas. She had no choice with Batley, who always said the gods would protect her from pregnancy. After mustering the courage one evening, Annabelle told Batley about the pregnancy. She saw a brief moment of shock on his face, a rare instance when he wasn't the all-knowing prince-priest. Batley quickly recovered and claimed that he already knew everything because the gods had spoken to him. But this tiny moment of uncertainty stuck with Annabelle. She was sure he was lying, which meant he didn't really know everything. He wasn't an omnipotent ruler after all. If he didn't know about her pregnancy, then maybe he didn't have as much control over her reality as she believed. At first, 44-year-old Batley told Annabelle she would have to terminate her pregnancy. Initially, Annabelle seemed glad to hear this because she also didn't want to keep the baby. But when she told him the baby was most likely his, Batley changed his tune. The next day, he showed up at Annabelle's house to ask her if she decided what to do about the pregnancy. She repeated her desire to have an abortion. Batley bristled. He yelled at her, claiming the baby was a child of the gods. He accused her of violating the gods' will. He claimed that if she went through with the termination, she would be a murderer. At that moment, Annabelle knew she no longer had a choice. 
Just like years before, when she wanted to go live with her father, Batley was dictating everything. They would tell Thomas the baby was his. She would have to keep this baby and raise it. Annabelle's dreams of leaving the church and starting a career were replaced with visions of teen motherhood and subservience to Batley and her mother. During her pregnancy, Annabelle began to self-harm, cutting herself. She felt trapped in her situation, with no one understanding to turn to. And her life at home was about to become even darker. On February 1st, 2008, when Annabelle was only days away from her due date, she found Damien Batley dead in his room. She ran to the Batleys to share the awful news. Once again, Batley surprised her with a rare display of shock. It was just like when she told him about her pregnancy. The entire family wept for Damien, and the police were called to investigate. At first, they suspected suicide, but after examining Damien's cell phone, they found a video of the moment he died. He passed as a result of autoerotic asphyxiation gone wrong. Over the next few days, Batley told his flock that Damien's death was his son's will. The gods had set this path for him, and he had chosen to go down it, and no one could have done anything to stop it. His grieving wife, Elaine, sobbed next to him. While she may not have believed Batley in those moments, she eventually came to accept that narrative. But Annabelle never could. She didn't want her life to end in the cult. A few days later, she went into labor and gave birth to a baby girl. Despite being initially against the pregnancy, she changed her mind as soon as she laid eyes on her baby. All of a sudden, she had something, someone, to live for. It gave her the determination she needed. She would escape Batley's influence to find a better path for herself and her baby. Even if it meant taking down the church. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the cul-de-sac cult. We'll follow Annabelle's journey to freedom and the trial that put Batley and his acolytes behind bars. For more information on the cult and its members, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Devil on the Doorstep, a memoir by Annabelle Forrest with Katie White's extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Lena Olson, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie. Who were they really? Real Pirates is a new Spotify original from Parcast. Join us starting November 15th as we bring the true story of pirates to life.